To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. This episode is sponsored by CF Creative Designs, who I've turned to for my own design needs, my websites, my logos, and more. They're a full-service creative design agency, and they also do package design, vehicle wraps, trade show booths, promotional items, signage, and more. CF Creative Designs has built an incredible reputation for their award-winning designs, their expertise, their dependable and quick turnaround times, and their excellent customer service. Their rates are affordable to fit in your budget. Check out their five-star reviews at www.cfcreativedesigns.com or reach them at 201 301- 306-6422 for a free quote on your next design project. My guest today is Dr. Simon Rago, Chief Psychologist at Montefiore Medical Center, New York City, and a professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Simon's been sought out as an expert for CBS News Television, Fox News TV, The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and much more. He's the author, along with Sarah Fader, of the number one Amazon bestseller, The 10-Step Depression Relief Workbook. So, Simon, I haven't seen you in 15, 16 years. Yeah. Since graduate school. Since graduate school. Yes. And here we are in your office in the Bronx. Yep. And uh, explain your role. My role now is chief psychologist at Montefiore Medical Center and a director of the internship training program. So it's administrative in running the division of psychology and it's training and supervision and administrative in the psychology internship training program. Yes. And it's funny to me, since you were a colleague in graduate school, when I supervise PhD students, they talk about how you're tough. They, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they say I'm a tough as a supervisor. Yes. That's funny. Tough. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's in contrast to the image of myself that I hold. Well, I see. I remember you as, as just so friendly and low key. And that's why it made me laugh. Yeah. yeah. I hear that. Uh, I might take exception to that and, and oh, yeah? instead say maybe strict. Oh, strict. I think in, in my heart, I'm a bit, I'm a big softy. And especially that's as, how I see you. Yeah. So I was so, like, what? Tough. I, now, but I am strict about doing treatment the way it's designed. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite passionate about making sure trainees adhere to the principles of, especially CBT, which is, which is what is near and dear to me. And cognitive behavioral psychology. Yeah. Yes. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which has principles that need to be delivered in order to do what it's supposed to do. Yes. And it's a bit like baking a cake. I always think if you, if you want to bake a chocolate cake, 
And if you're expecting a delicious chocolate cake to come out of the oven, <laughs> then you you if you say I want that chocolate cake, but I don't want to put butter in the recipe, and I'm a bit shy about putting cocoa in the recipe, <laughs> and ah, flour. I'm not so sure. And eggs, give or take, the the more you muck around with the key ingredients, the less you can expect cake as designed to come out of the oven. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And um, the way I see it, as far as toughness, if you want them to grow, they should be pushed a little bit out of their comfort zone. And and right? yes, we all otherwise. How are they going to learn otherwise? <laughs> Go ahead. I have a friend who's a personal trainer who says. Mm-hmm. If you're going to the gym and you're about to do your weights and you're not at least a little bit anxious about not being able to finish, you're taking it too easy. You're coasting. You should be a little worried about that last set you're doing. The last rep of the last set, you should be wondering whether you'll be able to get it up. And yes. if you can't, you've probably plateaued. Or if you're if you're not worried and you it's, it's you're not anxious about it, you've probably plateaued. Yes. So today we're going to begin by talking about depression, and you've just written a book about depression. I have. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. And um, I was hoping that we could begin with the analogy of the passengers on the bus that that you referred to in your book. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's a little ironic because we just finished talking about. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which is yes. a a change based therapy, it, the premise is we're going to teach you skills, cog, uh, thought skills, yes. ways to access, challenge, and change your thoughts and behavioral skills, things to do differently in your life. Yes, in order to feel better, CBT, and that, that's right. and that's why I'm how you put it. I'm tough. I'm tough with trainees <laughs> because if you're going to learn CBT, you have to be able to deliver these skills to the people you work with, with the hope of of helping them get better. That's right. And now you're asking me to actually start with a metaphor that's used in a different type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. That's true. Yes. Uh, created by Stephen Hayes. It's not my yes. metaphor. It's 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 Stephen Hayes' metaphor, who is the 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 founder of acceptance and commitment therapy, yes. which depending on which camp you sit in, many people see it as part of CBT. Other people see it as distinct in some ways. But the metaphor is one that's used to illustrate the importance of of commitment to the things that are important to you and a willingness or an acceptance of the stuff that gets generated along the way as you pursue those things that are important yes. to you. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So you're asking uh, a, a So CV- can you tell can you tell the listeners the metaphor? For sure. Yes. So yes. so it's just ironic that you're asking me to give you an acceptance metaphor to start, but I will do that. Okay? Thank you. <laughs> uh, am I being tough on you? Now? Yeah, you're being very okay. tough on me. Uh, so the, the idea of the, of the, the bus metaphor, the passengers on the bus metaphor is to understand that we ideally all will, can feel better about life, have greater satisfaction in life if we can focus our day to day efforts on things that are really important to us, our values. And if we can clarify what our values are and understand what Big things, big higher order things are really important to us. Family, religion, charity, fitness, fun. 
we can then set goals every day that line up with those values. Yes. And so it's a bit, here's where it becomes a bit like the bus driver, right? If you're driving a bus and it's your job to drive a bus every day, you yes. have a route. And Alexandra's route is uh, assigned and it's your job to get the bus from the start to the finish of the route every day. Yes. And what happens along the way in the route is passengers get on the bus. And those passengers are, some of them are regulars and some of them are new faces. Some of them are very kind and respectful. Some of them are not so kind, a bit rude or nasty or disrespectful. And you as the bus driver cannot control who gets on or off your bus. They get on for a few stops, they get off. New people get on, new people get off. And it's a mix of people all the time that are participating in your life as bus driver as you are trying to drive your bus along the route. And the day you take your bus into the garage, you park your bus, you go home for the night, start the next day anew. How does this work in life then? Right? So in life, we may not all be bus drivers, but in life, every day we have, if we're fortunate enough to think it through, a set of priorities, like driving the bus, yes. our goals for the day. Yes. And as we pursue those priorities or goals, a lot of stuff gets kicked up along the way. Some of it's good, wonderful, positive what we might think of as inner private experiences, emotions, thoughts, images, scripts. Some of it's not so positive. The voice of doubt or or negativity or criticism or negative emotions. It can be our own voice of doubt. Often it's yes. our own voice of doubt. Not just the rude people. Not just the rude, although the rude yes. people in this are typically us, shades of us. Right? Yes. So the So the unruly passengers on the bus are our own negative emotions, negative thoughts that will come up along the way inev inevitably for all of us as we pursue the things that are important to us. So the idea can be from the metaphor is, are you willing to accept all passengers on your bus and commit to driving that bus despite what they're saying or doing? Still driving towards your goals. Still driving towards your goals. In spite of them. And because of them. Oh. Say more about that, what you just said. It's a bit of both, right? It's, yes. it's in spite of them telling you these things. Yes. That you want to show yourself that you can do more. And it's some often because of these things that you need to engage and commit and focus on doing more. Both together. Yes. Um, you talked about in your book that we should not suppress our negative thoughts. Yes. Could you say more about that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, there's a, there, there's so many different ways to approach this. First of all, how, how would you suppress your negative thoughts? Yeah. Sometimes we think we could, right? Or we would like to. Can you? I think. I think we really can't. <laughs> I don't think we can. That's why we should not. Yes. In fact, we have to accept that we should not. Yeah, and 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 realize and recognize 
the unfortunate byproduct of the way the mind works is often the very things we try to suppress, we accidentally enhance. Yeah. The famous example that that people may have heard of is what's called the white bear or the pink elephant experiment. And it's very simple. Have you, have you heard of it? Yes. Yeah. You want to tell me how it works? Well, you can tell someone, do not think of a pink elephant. And of course, you have no choice. <laughs> there if I, it is. <laughs> if I said, when I count to three, the only thing, the most important thing, your life depends on you not thinking about a big pink elephant with big <laughs> floppy ears and a big wagging pink uh, uh, yes. trunk and a little pink swirly tail. <laughs> It's going to walk in this room in about five seconds and it's going to make its noise and sit in this chair. But when I get to five, I just want you to do whatever you can to not think about that. Right. Yeah. Impossible. Right. And here's the rub, right? How do you know when you're not thinking about something? When you're thinking about something else. How do you recognize when you've stopped thinking about the pink elephant? You have to tell yourself, I've just stopped thinking about the pink elephant. (laughs) When it's not in the vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) And then you realize if it's been really important to you, hey, I haven't been thinking about the pink elephant. And guess what rushes right back in? Yes. Because to not think about a thought and to recognize you're not thinking about a thought (laughs) requires you to think about not thinking about that thought. How (laughs) does that sound? And uh, from a brain perspective, thinking about the thing you're not supposed to be thinking about reinforces it It in your neurons. It not only reinforces it in your neurons, but in a cognitive sense, you've made it more important. That's right. And anything you make more important, you're going to pay more attention to. If it's really important to you, you pay more attention to it. And anything you pay more attention to, you notice more frequently. That's if you're, right. If you're buying a new car, suddenly everybody's got that model of car on the road. Or if and you, that happens with pregnant women. Pregnant women. If you're suddenly experiencing your pregnancy and you're looking around, doesn't it seem like all of a sudden there's all these different people who are pregnant as well? That's right. Or maternity sales all over the place. Yes. If you're looking to buy a house, suddenly you might see for sale signs where you might not have noticed them before. If you bought a new outfit and you think it's a one of, and then suddenly you realize, wait a second, that looks like my outfit. Yeah. And that does too. So, so what do people do if they have intrusive negative thoughts? That's a good point, right? Cause we were talking about a pink elephant, which is benign, right? Yes. For most people. But when it comes to people who end up in our offices, right? It's usually the stuff that people don't want to talk about with anyone else. They, usually the content is usually very scary or, or repulsive, repugnant, distressing, distasteful yes. to people. So it's no longer a pink elephant. Now it can be things like really violent thoughts, violence towards myself, violence towards other people. It can be, it can be sexually inappropriate thoughts about either my own sexuality or my sexual orientation or target of my of of my sexual aggressions it can be it can be other impulses other urges and so these become highly charged right yes and highly uh, um, uh, uh, distasteful to people so people really try to not think of the content of those thoughts but in the really trying 
not to, we're back to our same dilemma of yes. re reinforcing the thoughts and making them more important. So what's the solution? It sounds backwards. But option A is, in a sense, do what you have not been doing. So if you've been trying really hard to push the thoughts out, option A is allowing the thoughts to run their course. Not distracting yourself, not attaching more value to it than it simply being no different than any other thought you might have. It feels different, but it's just a thought. So allowing them to bubble up, noticing them, and not telling them to go away. Not trying to push them away, mm -hmm. not trying to distract yourself, not trying to judge them, simply observing them, noticing them, letting them roam about. Mm -hmm. Like clouds in the sky or leaves on a stream are two mindfulness techniques we might do to approach developing a new relationship with the way our, with mm -hmm. our thoughts. I've referred to watching the parade go by. Another good one. Yeah. Watching a train go by from an overpass. Yes. And just saying, there it is. There it is. And there it is again. Yes. So that's option A. What's another option? Option B, I hesitate with because people don't like this often, but it's for people who find the thoughts are repetitive and recurring and distressing. Sometimes it's actually helpful to actively engage and expose ourselves to the thoughts, either mm -hmm. through writing it out or saying it out loud and then maybe recording it and listening to it mm -hmm. over and over again creating a scenario around the thought that takes it to its most uncomfortable, distressing place, and then repeatedly rehearsing or rereading that scenario. It's something we call exposure, right? And the idea being is, is if we can confront the content of our thoughts regularly and repeatedly over repetitions, we can emotionally process the fear that gets associated with them. And the, we get used to it. They diminish in their power because they don't feel as anxiety-provoking. I'm much more familiar and comfortable with them. I've done it a million times. Yes. And then they pop up and it doesn't feel quite as startling or distressing anymore. Because you haven't run away from it. You've not it's run like, away. Oh, I've done this before, like you're saying. So option A is sort of the beginning, in a sense, to observe it or to even know that your thoughts, you know, are there. Yeah. Right? Because some folks aren't noticing, you know, are, are these thoughts coming up in pictures? Are they coming up in sounds? What is happening here? I yeah. feel terrible. And then the second part would be to go straight into it, to dive into it. Yeah. And I might even say that uh one does not have it doesn't one does not have to precede the other in that way you have i'd like people to know both some people just naturally gravitate more towards i'm going to lean into this and go right at it yes and other people find that very scary uh or sometimes it's just it's it's not working the way we would hope and people aren't getting more comfortable with it so another option one has is to practice more of a detached 
observation of their thoughts. Yeah. Right? But I agree that preceding both of those, it's really important to first even become aware that you're having these thoughts because often they're almost automated or automatic. Yes. Yeah, it takes a little bit of pause. E either one. Either one. At first, yeah. It's sort of a, a golden rule in cognitive behavioral approaches is awareness before change. You yes. have to understand that a lot of what we do is is governed by processes that we're not always entirely aware of. Do you want a, a little right. example? Can I throw an yes, example at yes, you? Yes. Can you? Are you? Are you? Uh, equipped to type quickly? Yes. How many words per minute? Do you oh, type? I haven't measured it, but my children are impressed. I am. They're impressed. <laughs> so you should be able to tell me instantaneously which keys are to the left and the right of the Z. Oh wow! No, I can't. That's more of a muscle memory thing. Muscle? Can you explain muscle memory? Muscle memory, as in um, a piano player will practice, and then their fingers will automatically be able to play through the practice, not necessarily through thinking about it, but through physically doing it. If you had to play the piano thinking of every note and key before you struck it? It would mess me up. And that goes for tennis too. I mentioned I'm a tennis player. Yep. If I think too much about every little nuance of my wrist or uh, forget it. The grip, the wrist, yeah. <laughs> the turn the legs, the bend the knees, the back to the center position on the court, yes. you run into some trouble, right? Well, what if that same process occurs with the way we process information in life, not just for sports, not just for music, but what if that's just, we actually have a muscle memory for processing situations. And what if for, for certain people, much like a bad tennis swing, which yes. uh, sometimes no experience in tennis is better than bad habits learned in tennis because it's harder to undo those bad Very habits. Very true. Correct? Yes. And so what if by no one's fault, they've learned bad habits about ways to process the world around them and they think in a muscle memory way, X happens in the wrong way. In the wrong way. Yes. Well, that happens all the time, doesn't it? It happens all the time. And Often, unfortunately, we're unaware of the power in which our thoughts, the role our thoughts played in dictating the outcome emotionally, right? Just yes. like, I don't know why I, I swatted the ball into the net. I don't know why my, I can't get my serve to kick up the way I'd like to, right? But now it's like, why do I go into social situations and end up feeling bad all the time? Like everyone's judging me. Yes. Or why do I wake up in the morning and just assume today's, I feel bad assuming today is going to be a, a, an awful day where nobody cares about me or my future is bleak. What if all that's just going on? And what you're referring to is the negative self-talk that people will have uh, for themselves. And sometimes it is a sentence like what you're saying. Often, I mean... What, especially when we get into people who, who come for clinical help with things like depression, anxiety, guilt, anger, the big negative emotional states, we often find culprits in the way they're thinking, Yes, which has gone unchecked for years sometimes. So it feels very natural to them because that's what they've done and they have very strong neural networks in the brain 
to explain the world with these filters. And react instantaneously Yes, without actually stepping back and wondering, is there a potential glitch in my system? Yes. No, that's a great example. Um, I'm thinking about a patient who was feeling terrible because she wrote a friend, and I forget if it was by text or by social media, she wrote her, and the friend didn't write her back for five hours. And she was a mess. And she had all kinds of explanations. I had her talk about what is your brain telling you could be happening? Let's write down all the options. Yeah. And of course, they were all of her worst case scenarios. Like, um, she doesn't like me. Our friendship is over. She found out that I said something about her to so-and-so, but I really didn't mean it. But now she knows. I wish yeah. I could take it back. And um, and she was ruminating, like what you're talking about. Her brain was actively think like over and over again, repeating all of these scary thoughts. And it gets connected to what mood? For her, it was sadness and anxiety mixed. Yeah. And the chicken or the egg question is, were those emotions there in the space of the five hours and then drove those thoughts? Or in the space of those five hours, did those thoughts emerge and drive those emotions? Right? And in, yeah. in cognitive behavioral therapy and its cousins, if you will, it doesn't really matter. We know when one of them's in town... The other ones are likely to be around the corner. If I'm sad and anxious, yes, odds are my thoughts are going to bend this way that matches those emotions. And if I think these things about myself or my friend or my future or I ruminate about what's gone on, odds are my emotions are going to bend to match that way of thinking. Yes. So sometimes the mood can come first. And then the thoughts can say, what's causing this? And then they'll come up with something. Yeah. You have to be, we're like a snap. We are meant to analyze, interpret, and and move quickly, right? So we yeah. try to make sense of things like our little typing fingers or our piano, fingers on the keyboard. And we learn, this is how I react. Yeah. So you're talking about how can people learn a new way? a new way of thinking, which, as we were saying before, folks will have to move out of their comfort zone because the natural, intuitive, fast way could be the negative self-talk that you're talking about or the filters. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And even worse, as you've talked about, what, what's muscle memory, right? You've done it over and over and over again. And so conventionality is is important to recognize it it may not be the most healthy way to move but it's the most comfortable or familiar to me even if it's like a good pair of old shoes right they no longer support your foot and you're getting back pain but wow they're so comfortable to slide your feet yes. into so if you've always evaluated in your case of your your person uh, in the absence of information my mind just generates all the reasons why there's a problem here Yes. It fills in those five hours with stuff that could potentially have gone wrong. 
what yes. she thinks about me, what she found out about me, what's, what her mind is doing. And none of it is on the side of benign or, 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 or no. neutral even. No, it, no. Very hard for people to think about alternatives that would be neutral or positive even. So her shoes, her old comfortable shoes, if you will, are to just, when in doubt, I'm assuming it's negative. Yes. That's her rule. And if that's just the one instance of that rule, imagine if that's your general rule. Now it's not just about my friend who hasn't responded in five hours. Now it's also about my my boss and what he or she thinks of my work. And now it's not just about my work, but it's also about what this this mole on my hand really means. Right? When in doubt, I'm going to fill it in with the darker side. Often, um, if I ask a patient to just think of one alternative, just one other alternative to these negative thoughts, it gives relief. But it does; it takes a lot of effort. It's. I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's. Yeah, in in my field, in cognitive behavioral therapy, we can actually. Again, it's not so. It's not so complex to think of thoughts and feelings and actions interacting. Yes, but that does not mean it's easy to change. It's simple does not equate to easy. So you make a great point. It's it's even generating sometimes one competing, less negative appraisal or interpretation yes. can be a lot of work. But if you do, you can dilute the impact of all the other thoughts. That's a good way to say it. it dilutes it. Like a yeah. little drop of, of ink in a big glass of water, right? The more oh. water you can pour in, the less concentrated the ink becomes. Yes. And the less impactful that voice or those, those thoughts can have on your mood. So this patient, I don't remember what alternatives she, you know, it could have been maybe my friend is taking her SATs. Maybe she's at a tournament. Um, something like that. Yeah, maybe it's unrealistic to expect people to respond in whatever time I had in mind. <laughs> True. I don't know what the rules are, or if you've read them, Alexandra, tell me, where is it written that someone has to respond in X number of minutes or hours to a text? What's right. the What are the social norms to responding to texts nowadays? Uh, well, this was a high school student's, Yeah. What what do uh, for high school students? Yeah. mostly. The, I think the unwritten rules are it's instantaneous. It is yeah. so, and if if they don't, what's the typical reason? Oh, a variety. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. So in the she was accurate in there's something going on with the delay. Well, actually, with this young lady, um, everything was fine once she found out. What it was. Yeah. So in the absence of that, though, you've got yeah. an interesting idea, right? Which is mm -hmm. maybe she was right about the timeliness of it. Mm -hmm. But if she pushed through the fact that it was there's something off with the timing, she may have then been able to understand what are all the possible rash reasons why people, when they are delayed, get delayed. Yes. And maybe Which that can might... happen. Yes. Like I, I don't know what she came up with, but or what was the answer in the end? 
oh my gosh, you know, I can't remember. I, I, I remembered that the outcome was it, it's all fine. We're friends. Nothing was wrong. So then for yeah. her, it may also be to understand as a theme, how often do I predict doom yes. and gloom and get something other than that? Yes. Um, what we did also was we did the panel of 12 exercise. Putting your, putting your thought in front of a panel? Well, or- uh, we outlined all of these worst case scenarios. She put them in sentences like she, she doesn't like me anymore. And, um, and then I had her rate each possibility about what her body says is the truth of uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. And it might've been like, it's a nine out of 10 that she, she's done. She's not my friend anymore. And then I, we would say, what would a panel of 12 reasonable people rate this at the truthfulness of this? Yeah. And then it's going to be like a three, right? Yeah. And then the, the next question is, if it's true, what would be your your first next step? So if the girl is done with her, she's not her friend anymore, then first next step, turn my attention to the other friends and build those friendships. Yeah. So then she could see she doesn't have to catastrophize yeah. about it. Yeah. She could survive it, even if it were true. What we might call uh, horror versus hassle. Okay. Say say more. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. It would it's not pleasant to be have a friend walk away from you. Yes. But can you is it truly like horror in your life or can you recoup from it? Can you focus on things you could do to recover? Yes. So hassle, maybe a little bit higher intensity than a hassle, but definitely something we can work through. Yes. Well said. And have you done it before? Have you lost friends through a variety of circumstances and made new friends? That That's also a nice thing to think about. Yes. Yes. And back to our passengers on the bus to a degree is, can you accept that sometimes people change and evolve and sometimes you're not part of their picture anymore despite how you feel about them? Yeah. Another good point. So there's a variety of ways you can see, but that one could work with this type of thought process she had, your panel of 12, your decatastrophizing, your, your sort of accept, there's acceptance-based strategies, there's mm-hmm. problem solving you hinted at about how do you f- then focus on developing or strengthening your other relationships. I might do something called reattribution with her, which is, which is if she was then blaming herself, I might wonder, if that's the, if if a person will end a friendship with you over those reasons, is that the type of friend you'd want in your life? Is that about you or is that about the other person? Yes. Any of which should help someone feel better. Yes. All of which would be useful to be able to know and walk through if you hit a wall and start to feel depressed or down or anxious. Yes. Uh Yeah, a patient I worked with yesterday tried a new strategy. She found, we found through discussion that when she was depressed, when she was ruminating, she always did it in the same spot in Mm -hmm. her house. Mm -hmm. So uh, that does happen, doesn't it? For sure. Yeah. They go to the couch or they go to their bed and they start to think. Yeah. So she moved. She went somewhere else. 
Yeah. Literally moved. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was going to say, uh, she, she activated herself. Yeah. And it's no coincidence that I think you're exactly right, that, that people tend to ruminate more when they are in lower active activity states. Yes. I, I'll, if I had a patient like yours, I would say, let's play a game. You call me and you say, I say, how's your mood been? And you say, my mood has been really down. I've been ruminating a lot. And I have to bet the farm whether you have been inside of your house or outside of your house. Which one am I going to bet on? <laughs> yeah, inside. And then I have to say whether you were inside your bedroom or outside of your bedroom. I have to bet one or the other. What Odds are which one, if you've been ruminating and down, which one am I going to take? Yeah. Great questions. And then in your bed or out of your bed? Okay. Right. So what's the solution then? And you call me up and say, I've had a great week. My rumination's been feeling much better. Same dilemma. Am I going to say you've been inside your place or outside engaging in life? Yes. So activity is a great cure for rumination. It's hard yes. to do both. It's very hard to do. It's when someone is in a deep depression to, to force themselves to get active isn't easy, but it does work. It sure does. And, and I think what becomes the challenge then is to understand how you set your behavioral goals to get the momentum going again, to get them, to get things moving. Right? Yes. And we often do that with things like exercise. Oh, yeah. Often people uh, neglect to recognize the powerful effects that exercise can have on one's mood. Oh, it sure is. I, I love prescribing exercise therapy to patients. Yeah. Yes. I know you were talking about this before we started today a little bit more, but yes. I agree. I think there's, there's so much um, data out there on yes. The robust effects it has not just on your physical health and, and conditioning, but the the impact it can have is on things like anxiety and depression as yes. well. And the beauty of it is that it is largely free. I know. You don't need anything more than the the willingness, back to our passengers on the bus idea, to commit to starting the process, regardless of what your thoughts or emotions or energy or motivation or mood might tell you in this moment. Yes. Right? I, I heard a, a great um, example from Marlon Hoover, who I took a course with him, and, and this was part of the, the clinical psychopharmacology that I was studying. And I said, Marlon, why is it that my very anxious patients feel so much better when they sprint. Can you explain that from a brain perspective? Uh -huh. And he said, well, in some ways, our brains are very simple. And we were designed to escape from the tiger. So when we're feeling anxious, when we have adrenaline, our body is in either the fight or the flight mode. Yeah. And if we suddenly sprint... Our brain says, oh, 
she got away from the tiger uh-huh. and shuts it off. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was such a great, simple yeah. explanation. Yeah. It's actually, there's a, there's a similar explanation about why, I don't know if you've heard it, but why we worry. And it's a, it's sort of an, again, like the running from the tiger is a, is a sort of evolutionary perspective, right? Like this is the same brain by and large with a few minor tweaks that was there back when we would peek out of the cave and look to, to sort of see what food we had to gather, knowing that we were also potentially someone else's food. Right? Yes. So, so in a, in a worry sense, what becomes interesting, this is also taken from acceptance and commitment therapy is to understand that our brain is at the end of a long lineage of brains that in the absence of knowing for sure, when there's uncertainty, yes, we're going to guess that there could be some danger there because if we... For the survival. For the survival. the If we looked at the cave and on the horizon, we see a hump and we're not sure if it is a blackberry bush which can give us food yes, or a black bear, which yes. will make us I've its done food that when I'm running. Yeah. Okay. The people that said, I'm pretty sure it's a blackberry bush ran out. And if it was, they got a little food, but if it was not, their lineage ended that day. <laughs> yes. If the people in the cave looked out and said, ah, I'm pretty sure that that's a black bear, they went hungry that day, but they lived on the next day to try again that's and right. to reproduce. Yes. Similarly, I'm not so sure. If, I think if I walk off this cliff, I have a good chance of making it. You get If you guess wrong in the negative way, your lineage ends there. Yeah. You say, you know what? pretty sure it's dangerous. I'm going to turn around and walk the long way around. You're there tomorrow to continue on. And so over millennia, we are the end product of people who said, when in doubt, I'm going to guess it's dangerous and try something else. Yep. Now we're bombarded all the time with messages about the world's dangerous place and all these threats. So our poor brains are saying, whoa, Yes. When I can't be sure, I'm going to assume it's bad. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And then your poor fight-flight reaction is getting set off all the time if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense to me that this professor explained it in that way because it's our poor brains just trying to do the best they can with what's there now. Mm -hmm. We haven't quite caught up to where we are in terms of what we've progressed as a species. Our brain is older. Yeah. Unnecessary anxiety. Unnecessary. So you are a runner. I'm a runner. And and that must be therapy for you. Running has always been my therapy. I've run my entire life from from elementary school. I I grew up in Canada and we had a a vice principal of my elementary school, Mr. Ferguson, created a, a pre-before-school-starts running club around the schoolyard called the, it's in Canada, It's called it was called the Kilometer Club. 
Because we don't have miles. We have kilometers (laughs) in Canada. One mile is 1.6 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And so they measured out around the playground yard exactly a loop of, of an exactly one kilometer. And it would start, I think, at eight o'clock. And if school was starting at nine, you'd have an hour. And you'd go up to the front and you would get a popsicle stick. And each time you did one loop, you would get another popsicle stick. And you could try to run as many kilometers as you could that day. And you would cash in the popsicle sticks. They would record them. And at the end, periodically, there'd be a big assembly and you'd get called up and you'd get a ribbon for 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers, 500 kilometers. It was very behavioral. Yeah, it sure was. That started my love for running, which continued right up till, till a couple of years ago. I, I, uh, I grew until I, I started the marathon running. Mm -hmm. I did my first. Which was when? The first marathon I did was in 2010, the New York marathon. And, um, so after that time, I, I did three other ones and I was going to do my fifth marathon and then call it quits in October of 2016. Yeah. And it, I, I wanted to end on a high note. I wanted to end with a personal record. So I started training early and along the way I moved. So I moved from training indoors in my, gym that my building had to outdoors in neighborhood at a time when I was ramping up my mileage. And those two things are not good for the, for the joints, the moving surfaces from treadmill to pavement and increasing mileage as you build up towards a marathon ended up causing a fracture in my toe. Ah. So it was a month before I was I was supposed to do it in October. It was the Wine Glass Marathon in Corning, New York. It's a beautiful oh. run from Bath, New York to Corning through, where they make the, the wine glassware. And so Corningware oh, is, Corning. is in Corning, New York. Yes. It's beautiful. It's in October. So the leaves are changing. And I had done it for a charity for an association, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Mm. So I had a cause, which I was proud of. People had sponsored me. So I stubbornly, I found out I fractured my toe in September and I just took the month off and I still ran it in October, which was A, a big challenge and B, not wise for a healing toe. Uh, so since that time, I have struggled with, uh, uh, it's become arthritic in one of the joints. So, but yeah, the, the, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. I have not given up. And the beauty of it is I now get to practice what I preach to each and every one of my patients because I, I'm highly committed to the value of running. Running is my thing and I value exercise and I still have a goal to run. But I know that's since 2016. That's since 2016. It's been a, a process to try to figure out a way to get back. And every step when you run with a arthritic toe, you feel. So, but the beauty of it is much like emotional distress, you can learn to develop a new relationship with the sensation of pain. Hmm. And so it's been a great opportunity for me to be mindful of how it feels when I'm running and practice some of the same 
strategies that I use with the people I work with on myself. Catching what my mind tells me I'm capable or not capable of doing on a given day. Right. Understanding that it's actually not just a pain. My, as I've gotten familiar with my pain and friendly with it, I actually find it speaks differently on different, some days it's very intense and feels general and other days it's not as intense and it, and it sort of comes and goes. Some days it starts quite intense and then dissipates as I run. Other days it starts not so bad and gets more intense as I run. Wow. So the beauty of it is, is I'm still pursuing what's important to me. And in fact, I just found out I was selected in the lottery for the New York Marathon ah, this November. That's terrific. Thank you. I said, I'm going to throw my name in. And if I, if I get it, I'll make this my last one as a, <laughs> as a testament that I can work my way back from a toe injury. So we shall see. Oh, wow. I, I ran the 2012 New York Marathon. Oh, good for you. Yes. Is and that your first? It, it was my first and only. Uh-huh. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was wonderful. Yes. Yes. I uh, I think it's, it's, there's no marathon with the crowd support like that one. That was it. I mean, what I loved about it was the New Yorkers and all of the bands that, that you, as you're running, there's another band and they're, they're everywhere. They're cheering for you. It's just so beautiful. Yes. And every neighborhood takes on a different personality as you run through the different boroughs of Manhattan. Yeah, so special, super special. But I have cut down my running um, because I'm making tennis my priority and okay. I, I can't do it all. No, no. Yeah. Tennis is a great sport as well. Yeah. It sure is. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And Simon, prior to starting this recording, you mentioned that you uh, plan vacations around food. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know where it came from because I, when I knew you back in graduate school, I I wasn't so much into the sort of fine dining or food experience sort of culture. I may have been starting to get into it. Yeah, I certainly attributed to to my parents' love for food and our family culture of of long prolonged discussions over the dinner table. Yes. Lingering it's using food to have lingering conversations. Yes. But when you walk into that world you suddenly realize wow there are places in the world with people who are so enthused about the science and the art of of food preparation and presentation and so creative that you can, if you look, go to places that are doing really amazing things with with what we would think of as as <laughs> like just a staple for living. It be, really becomes an experience to go to some of these places. And I can give you an example of yeah. one. Yeah, let's hear. If you go to, have you been to Spain? No. So so there is a uh, to the north in Spain almost bordering on actually bordering on France is uh, a part of Spain called San Sebastian and it has if they're if they're foodies listening it has the second highest density of Michelin starred restaurants in the world outside of I think Kobe Japan that's special so it's not a big area yeah but if you want to go to a a Michelin starred restaurant 
that is a destination to go to. And of these Michelin-starred restaurants, there's one called Mugaritz or Muharitz, M-U-G-A-R-I-T-Z, yes. which is out in the, the country of Spain. And almost you can almost imagine the Swiss Alps in the background. And it's, it's I think, ranked fifth in the world for world's best restaurants. And... So we, we, my wife, who's a psychiatrist, had a conference in um, San Sebastian. Yes. And so knowing the conference was going to be there and knowing it had these restaurants, we planned around the conference several s- stops in these restaurants, and the highlight of which was going to be uh, Mugaritz. Yes. And... Uh, we took our, we have a, we have a, uh, I have a son who's now almost four, but we took him. This was, he was probably one and a half. And we called up the restaurant because we, in America, when you try to go to fine dining, sometimes there's policies about, about, you know, diners or age or restrictions and things. Yeah. We've often found, uh, we don't want to limit our lifestyle. We want to include our family, our son in our lifestyle. So, but places in America often will, will discourage younger children because it's usually a prolonged experience and there's other diners considerations called Mugaritz and maybe it's Spain or the European culture, but they, when mentioning our son, they were excited and they, of course you have to bring him. Hmm. We said, you know, we were very specific. It's there's a time change. It's going to be a long meal. The when we got there, they created a tasting menu just for him. Wow! So we, as the adults at the table, he was the only young one in the restaurant, and we dressed him up in a in a nice suit, <laughs> and they had his high chair for him. But for every meal, every course, we had in our meal, he was. Similarly plated with a new plate, new utensils, uh, but a children's iteration of our adult tasting menu. And then they brought us into the kitchen for him so he could see the team working in the kitchen. And he was one and a half? One and a half. Did you get a photo of each one? We got, yes. I have a, uh, as my alternate me on Instagram, I go by the handle I ate there. So, so I also, years ago, before there was a Yelp, I registered I ate there.com thinking how great it would be to, to have consumers rate their experiences in places they go. And then I sat on it and then Yelp came and I've let it, it sits in its own place but on i ate there when i go to these places mm-hmm. i take pictures i will look at that <laughs> yes. so you the dishes are like art and there's there's less of my son's dishes and more of the adult dishes but i may have a picture of him holding up a i think it's a piece of either prosciutto or uh-huh. or bologna i can't remember <laughs> i'm plating it on the plate you will never forget that never yeah and there's these little gems in places where you can go right here in New York, if people are listening in New York. Yeah. Give us a, give us a gem. Tell us about it. On the Rockefeller estate in Westchester in, uh, uh, it's about 30 minutes from Manhattan to the North. Um, there is a, 
restaurant by a famous restaurateur named Dan Barber, who's written a great book called The Third Plate. And it's called Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And it's a farm on the Rockefeller estate where you literally eat farm to table and there's there's no menu. You tell them what your restrictions are and you tell them what your allergies are and they will make you a, it's about a 22 course meal on whatever's the catch and the farm produced that season. How long is that experience? 22 courses. We went in January. We go annually, uh, at least once a year. We try to go. And we went in January and it was close to six hours. Oh, yeah. That's really spending time together. That is yeah. uh, spending time together in a place that's that's their whole focus is service and food and presentation. And they tell you stories about the where the where this yam came from <laughs> and which they don't yeah. do GMO, but they do. They, they create iterations of fruits through through cross fertilization naturally. So they may create a version of a yam that's more creamy and textured by mixing it, cross-fertilizing it with other plants. And they'll have beehives on. You can drive past them and see the beehives where the honey for your tea was made. And when you want an herbal tea, they will roll a cart and you will snip the branches off the uh, of the particular herbs you want for your tea. So this is a very active meal. It is an active meal. Yes. You participate. <laughs> yeah. Well, Simon, before before we bring this to a close, can you tell listeners the name of your book? The Ten Step Depression Relief Workbook. <laughs> Thank you. A cognitive behavioral approach. And uh, how can they find you? Yeah, uh, you can always find me at at simonrego.com, or if you're a Twitter fan, I'm at PsyD, my degree PSYD. Wow, you got that. At side D. All right. Well, now we are going to eat lunch. <laughs> Thank you very much for this really enjoyable, reminiscing conversation. Great. Hi, this is Dr. Alexandra again. If you haven't had a chance, please consider purchasing my new book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which can be found on Amazon.com. I wrote it with love for children nine and under, or to serve as a symbolic gift for an adult in your life who's in need of hope. There's Always Hope by myself, Alexandra Miller, on Amazon.com.